This is Judo Cast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Welcome back to part two of the Marty Malloy interview. We're going to jump right back into things. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about transition judo and mat side coaching. And we're going to find out how Marty stays in shape now that she's not training for competition. We're going to hear a little bit about the struggle to find clothing when you've got big biceps. We're going to talk about uh, development ideas and we're going to explore some ways that we can push American judo to the next level and talk about the importance of making a positive impact on our kids through the art of judo. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and we're going to get right into it. That's interesting you talk about the transitions. In my opinion, I think that that transition judo is still one of the most undertrained <laughs> aspects of judo, you know, because totally. good newas is not a secret. You know, the, the rise of like Brazilian jiu-jitsu over the last 20 years, there's lots of people that are really good on the ground. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people that are really good on their feet that choose not to do the ground at all. Mm -hmm. Even on the, you know, IGF circuit, there's people that just, they neglect through the groundwork so much. I, I can't stand I can't it either, stand it. It, but it, it exists it in a pretty big way. And that just tells you, like, if I were fighting somebody and I did, like, let's say I did a shitty attack, boom, whatever, false attack, and they didn't, and I was open, like, like let's say I hadn't totally done a turtle, and they didn't jump on me to try something, they just stood there and went back to the line. To me, that's like, whoa, get them to the mat. Like, they have no confidence on the mat if they're not right. going to take that opportunity that is just sitting in front of them before the mate, obviously. <laughs> I used to be like that little toy, the one you kind of wind up and it goes, boom, and it pops out of the box. I guess you were probably not born when those things I've were popular. But With the jack-in-the-box? Yeah, that's it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, when I was taken down, I would never allow somebody to work me. Like, the last thing I want to do is to find out if somebody's good on the floor. So to that point, when I got to San Jose State, I was really bad at Nawaza. Not because anyone didn't try to teach me. We just didn't have the high level Nawaza skill where I came from. And so I would give my back and rely on like grinding it out, let them go at my neck, do some crazy stuff. And then maybe it'll be Mate, right? But then they pushed it into us at San Jose State. You never give anyone your back. And like right. Jose, you, all the coaches over the years would tell me like, don't let anybody work you. Like no one should ever be working on your back and you just sitting there taking it. Like, what are you doing? It's like, and then when you start thinking that way, like, wait a minute, like they have no right to be just keeping me here against my will. This is a fight. Then you, you build that confidence to turn and face them and like learn a technique that you can do from that position. Yeah. I think that when I say under practice, the reason I say that is because it's difficult. I think that that kind of practice is hard to practice. It's not really fun. There's a lot of bumps and bruises when you talk True. about transition practice. True. To do it for real. To do it for real. Yeah. But that's the way to kind of, when you say that, that time of opportunity. It's a very short window of opportunity to transition from a foot sweep or a throw into an arm lock or a choke before somebody has a chance to settle in. Because the other part is the transition importance is that everyone is willing to give up an arm. It's hard to talk about in words right now, but if I was to show you this simple concept of you avoiding your back when you get thrown, you leave your arm behind. So mm -hmm. I always have a hold of your sleeve. Mm -hmm. However, I knock you down you have to turn to avoid the score mm -hmm. and you leave an arm behind. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. I watched you arm lock many, many people with a foot sweep because they have to avoid 
They they yeah. turn really hard and they leave that arm exposed and you can jump on that arm so quick. I mean, that's what judo is, right? Like you don't have a choice not to 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 react to the throw, right? So if I'm going in, like they have to try and turn out, but then that means they're going to get thrown. So they have to leave the arm behind. Like that's the setup for every judo scenario ever, right? Like right. you can't afford to not react to what I do because I could throw you. So your reaction I can manipulate that, right? I can pull one way so you'll react the other way and it's like, boom. So try to set that up for a practice. You know, picture yourself know, in a it's room. Hard. It's, it's hard, hard to do because really hard. it's hard. If the coach is like, do the 100 uchikomis, like as as tiring as that may be, it's pretty simple procedure. Oh, go get the crash pads, do 50 nagikomis. Pretty easy to do. Now, so when I was a student, one of the coaches at the time, Marius Popescu, this is the like one of the drills that I remember was, it was horrible. Like I hated doing it but we called it takedown practice, not throwing practice, but takedown. So we would shoot a really crappy attack, something to make them fall. We weren't really practicing the takedown. It was like, okay, I'm going to like leg tap you or something. I'm going to get you to fall and break your balance. And I'm going to see how fast I can jump on. So when I was arm barring people from these transition, it wasn't just lucky because I like to do it. I actually drilled that a mm. lot when I was in college where we would do partial takedowns where people would fall and base put an arm out. Somebody will stop the throw and put their arm to base on the floor. That leaves the other arm exposed. That's a grind. So there's, there's that's a, a grind. shoot on the back of your head over and over and over. It is. So the uke <laughs> hates it, right? So it's that's why I say it's hard practice. Yeah. And most people like you're like, oh, when, when the coach tells you to do that, I remember Mario saying, all right, so we do our uchikomis, our newaz uchikomis, and you say, all right, stand up and you're going to do, you know, 20 takedown practices mm-hmm. combined with newaz. And mm-hmm. it was always like, Sometimes it was a tackle from behind. Somebody kind of knock you down and see how fast you can get an underhook or something to transition. I mean, a good adaptation is like saying the rule. If we do Tachiwaza, if you go to the mat, you have to continue in Nawaza. And one thing that always pissed me off is if they made that and no one listened. So the it's you're training for that moment, right? So right. they're going down and they're just standing up again. And I would get so annoyed. Like, you guys aren't doing the drill. So as simple like, as that sounds, most dojos will have Tachiwaza practice and then Nawaza yeah, practice. Yeah, a lot of them do. And it's not complicated to say, hey, why don't we combine, combine the two them. like an actual tournament? Like an actual match. It could be something that could uh, make a big difference. <laughs> I mean, so, we did that. We did it. We did it a lot. We did it. Not all the time. Like, I remember in phases, kind of, like mm-hmm. the training would change, you know, but... When I was in school, I think it was it was something that definitely sticks in my mind. And I, you know, Marius was a great so Nawaza practitioner. You, he, he helped, helped me build that skill. He not only helped me build that skill, like by showing me stuff, but he kind of, he roughed me up too. So <laughs> when Marius was my coach, I was cutting weight to 65 kilos at the time. That so, and Marius was like, he was neck and neck with Brian Olson. Him and Brian Olson were like rivals at this time at 86 kilos. So Marius is like, you know, 27 year old man. I'm like 18 year old freshman, sophomore at 65 kilos. And, you know, Marius didn't really go easy on me. No, he's like, oh, look at this throwing dummy, right? <laughs> Red haired throwing dummy. Yeah, but like those those days where you kind of when you realize that somebody is willing to go all the way, you know, like whether he would let go when I tapped out or not, like knowing that that would happen gave me this like confidence on the ground. Like I know it sounds goofy, but there was never one point in my career as an adult from the time I was 19 years old that I ever feared anybody would beat me in Nawaza, and I think I lost one match in Nawaza my whole my whole career against who I, I don't even know who the guy was he was a the feeling he was a, no I remember it really really clearly because he was this French guy he had a good sankaku and I I knew he had a sankaku <laughs> 
Like I watched him. Pin- That's how you know Isankaku is good because you and, know it's coming and he still got you with it. Yeah, like it was one of those things where like I, I remember having this guy on me and I don't even know how he was able to get my back, but somehow he knocked me down. I don't even normally let anybody work me from my back. Somehow it's like this guy's, you know, you you feel the the, the heel foot. kicking yeah. in. And before you know it, like my arms across my face, I'm like, whoa, that's tight. He pinned you? He pinned me. And, you know, that's a, that's a Keith Nakasone always, always say. You always got to pin somebody to make them feel because they got to sit out there in the mat for, at his time, it was 30 seconds. You know? <laughs> well, to your point, what you said earlier is that when you know somebody's going to mess you up, you there's a different level to the way you fight them back because it's right. either they're going to mess you up or you're going to just give everything to try and just meet them at that level a little bit more so it's less painful for you. Right. And then when you realize that you actually have power when you fight that, like you're actually better when you think that way, it spreads to all your matches, right? And so you right. just exponentially, and that's like, like, you just need someone to beat you up really bad on the mat. It's hard though, like trying to find that power like you're talking about, you know, long-term, you know, that's like, that's an interesting thing for you because you had so much success over the years. And obviously there was lots of ups and downs, you know, looking back, you can, you know, you're known as the medalist, right? But what a lot of people don't see is in between, you know, these years and there was, there was downtimes and days where you just weren't feeling like the championship Marty Malloy. Like, (laughs) you know, how many times do you fly across to Europe and go, man, I'm just like, I wasn't feeling it. And you start to think about, wow, what did I do wrong? And you come home and you're talking to Aton you know, and you're trying to figure you know. out, right? <laughs> You've been through it. Yeah. And so that's what people don't realize is there's all those those terrible show ups that you had. Like, and they haunt all of us. We can all think of those tournaments when we were just terrible, but you need the terrible ones. So what was your strategy? I mean, like I, I was talking to Justin about this, about like traveling home. Like there's like an uncomfortable flight after you do terrible and you got to fly 13 hours back home. Oh, it's it's just like pure misery. It's pure it's misery. Pure self-hatred, self-loathing, self-negative self-talk. Right. And like, no matter how old and mature you get, it doesn't really get much better. Like right. I, when you mess up, when you just, you cannot forgive yourself because I don't know with judo, it's one-on-one, right? There's no one making those decisions but you when you're out on the mat. Yeah, there's a coach there, but he doesn't make my muscle flex, right. <laughs> you know? So it's like there's no one to blame but yourself. And But you, you have to go through that and then come back from it, right? Like, fine, do it because otherwise you're going to hold it all in and it'll be worse for you probably. So you do that and then you get mad and you get focused for the next one. There was a time where I was trying to like do a little bit of a diary and that's really mm-hmm. not the kind of guy. I was never like a diary kind of guy. Okay, but a diary like today was cold or like no, this match no, went like No, it was this. more like, you know, well, one is I was, you know, phys- like keeping track of workouts with how it started. You know, I'm like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm keeping track of the number of rounds I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, honestly, I was trying to think, okay, how was I feeling? Like when I go to Tokai, and I'm there for, you know, two months and I'm doing 15 rounds of randori every night. Every night's not good. You mm-hmm. know, there's certain nights where I'm, and then I was, you know, I'm trying to keep track of my physical training and how it relates to how I'm doing at the dojo. Mm-hmm. And, it's and just, then you add in the mental part. Like, yeah. And you start to see like where, yeah. you know, I was trying to see if I can find some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, when was I bad? I was I, lucky bad, I had Aton because he did that for me. <laughs> yeah. So I was experimenting. I was with Aton in the beginning, you know, when he was kind of new to the whole thing and we were trying to do this, you know, not quite at the level. You got to experience a more experienced Aton than I did. I guess he made me do it. I yeah, would have but, never done it without him telling me to. Yeah. But I think most of mine was when I was doing bad. You know, that's how it is. Like, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, when yeah. I had a, a rough practice or a rough tournament, you know, you're sitting on that airplane and you've already watched two movies. You're like... <laughs> I got six more you hours. Gained, like you know? ten kilos, <laughs> right. and you're like just swollen with salty, plain food and water. See, I never, I never had the weight problem, you know. So I, when I was in college, I was kind of, you know, already as tall as I'm going to get, and I was cutting to 65 kilos, and it was killing me. I was cutting a lot of weight, 
Then I moved up to what was 71 kilos. A year or two later, they changed it to 73. So you were like, Hallelujah. yeah, 73 was always, you know, a hot bath and a missed, di- yeah, missed dinner. Yeah, I remember you being like, I'm going to go have dinner. Like, shut up, Chuck. Small dinner and a hot <laughs> bath and I'm good to go. And, you know, my my fighting weight is, uh, you know, I'm pretty much still the same fighting weight I was Good for you. That's awesome. Without even trying, huh? Just living life. I exercise. You know what I mean? I don't really, I don't train, but I, I do a lot of exercise. I work out with the kids. I chase the kids around. I have my own kids. And we're always like, and, and now with COVID, you know, my wife and I were always like, we walk a lot, you know, like just get out of the house and, you know, we're. So you do maintenance. I do maintenance. <laughs> that right. I, I hit a lot. I did a push up thing last year where I was trying to do a hundred push ups a day. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but. You I, get buff doing that. You can get some tone for sure. That. So for me, I wasn't really like trying. It wasn't necessarily the, because it got to the point where the hundred was pretty easy to do. Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to mentally get through because there's days in a year where you don't feel good. And, you know, I actually had an injury in my shoulder and I, it was kind of harming me after four months. Yeah. But I was like, I got to finish, you know? So I went through to six months, did, you know, 18,000, 18,000 push-ups. Oh. And then I was like, well, I, I'm just going to get, and as soon as I stopped my push-ups, my shoulder kind of got, got better, better in two yeah. weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so it was good. But now I, I still do a lot of push-ups, but I don't really have a, a written plan or any kind of regiment. But Add pull-ups next time. I'll do the pull-ups. That's pull-ups. I'll do. So okay. what, do you, what do you do these days to keep fit? I mean, you're, you're not competing for judo, but how do you, how do you stay fit? Um, well, I've always been a runner. I used to hate running for weight cutting, but I run now maybe like two to three days a week, which is too much. I don't think I should do that much because I don't want to deteriorate too fast. But I like it. I try to do it in the middle of the day just to like clear my head and get outside. California has such beautiful weather. Um, and then, I mean, I have my own home mat, like my a mat with my name on it that's like bright right. pink. Yeah. <laughs> I've had it for years and I was always training at the dojo, so I never really used it. And then David was like, pull out the mat. Like the gym's closed. Yeah, he let's do some Uchikomis. Like, and we have free weights. We have bands. And like we were doing, we do judo sometimes. We, we roll on it. But um, sometimes that ends up with us arguing. So we don't roll all the time. <laughs> you do the technique this way no 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 it's this way those are what judo couples fight about right um but yeah i try to work out at least five to six days a week david and i will go hike on the weekends and i just got a skateboard be careful i will you got a longboard no well it's 27 inches okay it's a cruiser style. Yeah, you want it to be with a decent size wheel so you don't end up tripping on a small little pebble or something that exactly. stops the it's fun it's fun trying to learn a new skill I used my longboard for years. That's how I walked my dog for years. Every Perfect. night I would just get, even when I was, you know, practicing judo and like I'd come home and just zip all over the place. And, Fun, right? Yeah. I got some nice soft big wheels. I think they're 65 maybe. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know too much about it's it. It's fun. I'm trying not to fall. I did like do something weird yesterday and my shoulder kind of moved and I was like, oh, be careful. So before we get you, we, we've had you here a while. I, I, I totally appreciate your time. I got some uh, fan no some fan questions. So I'm going to fire out some okay. some questions and uh, we'll let you, you know, I, some of these things like, let's see, we don't want to catch you off guard too much. Okay. Wait, where did you source these? Um, this is this is top secret okay. some, from some <laughs> of the Marty Malloy fans. I love this. Uh, this is a private Facebook group I had that you don't know about <laughs> called Marty Malloy Fans. I started the group years ago. Marty Malloy Fans. Yeah. So the first question, it says, uh, what are the most important traits for a coach in your chair at an IJF event? And is there any matches that you remember the advice from your coach that made a difference? Hmm. So what makes a good side coach at an IJF event? I guess like actually knowing what your techniques are. 
So you want to have confidence in your coach that your coach knows you? Because I'm sure you've been to events where you got coaches where you've never worked with them before. I've been lucky, actually. Okay. I've had most of the, almost everyone who's sat in my chair over the years knew my judo pretty well. And that goes from like, you know, from San Jose State people to Jimmy Pedro to um, Herman Velasco was in my chair so many times when I was teen. He was great. He he knows my judo better than me. Yeah, (laughs) it's crazy. Like, so it seemed like Jimmy was probably in your chair most of the time at your your big events. Toward the later, the bigger ones are at the end. Yeah, and Mike Swain obviously a couple times. But yeah, knowing what you do, right? There's nothing worse than having a coach like yell out some technique because they see the opportunity for it. But if that's not part of your repertoire, like you can't just whip it out, right? And I guess maybe knowing the the needs of your player, like I mentioned this before, like Kayla, she'll need you to like come at her the whole time. Like, come on, come on, come on, push, push, push. And like me, I just kind of need to get a few tips here and there. So just knowing what the style of like how the player listens to you is helpful. What was the second part of that question? I just asked if you had any specific um, advice that you remember that really helped you pull through like a difficult situation in a match. I mean, there's the most famous one, which is like when I was in London, I think Jimmy said, Sode, coach. I think he said, Sode? Right, because you can hear it, right? When, I don't you, remember. Honestly, I don't remember hearing it. But I No, but on the video. But I heard it later. And right. I was like, oh, he said it. And for all I know, I could have heard it and did it. I don't know, but I don't remember hearing it. But when I saw the video, I was like, holy moly. <laughs> so he knows me. Like, talk about knowing what your player but does. But sometimes, <laughs> you know, like I had, a, I talked to with Justin about this a little bit. You know, having that coach that you have like some kind of connection is important. Because mm-hmm. I've had, you know, a, across the board coaches that don't even know me, you know, happen to be assigned to that tournament from USA Judo. Mm-hmm, somebody, mm-hmm. you know, even all. So Jimmy, it was kind of a weird situation for me because I used to compete against Jimmy a little bit. Not mm-hmm. much, but... Uh, later on when he was retired, he actually was my coach at one of like one of my more successful tournaments. I got, he knew all your moves. It wasn't just that he knew my moves, but I also had this confidence. I know it sounds kind of weird because he was a former competitor of mine and, but he knew everybody. Mm -hmm. So to have him Mm -hmm. sitting in my chair, the, the small pieces, you know, like coaches, like, like these questions, sometimes they're a little goofy, right? What's the one thing, but it's the subtle things. It's the subtle things that a good coach can do for you. It's not like, oh, they said this one thing that made it all. It's like every little subtle cue that a coach can give you can make a big difference. And it doesn't have to be like some major thing. But when I had Jimmy, I I, I fought in one of these like B-level tournaments, you know, whatever that means. It was a really hard tournament. It was a big tournament. And I actually, I fought the Latvian guy for the bronze medal. I actually won the bronze at this tournament. I beat the four, the guy who won the bronze at the Olympics the previous year. Dang. So it was like, it was a high-level tournament. Although it's, you know, it was just a B level, but there was a lot of people there that day and Jimmy was in my chair all day. And it was one of those tournaments. It wasn't organized like today's IJFA event, you know, events where you're, it's quick. You know, you're having matches. There's not as- Oh, you're there all day. Well, I think we had 90 people in our division. So my first match was probably nine or 10 in the morning. And my bronze medal match was at 8 p.m. Like, but I, I was fighting, you know, I probably had six matches. Mm-hmm. And, but they were spread through the whole day and it was just one of those things, but Jimmy was there and, you know, just kind of like, he had fought a lot of the guys that I was fighting. You know what I mean? You he could listen them. to what he said to you and know, like he knows. Right. <laughs> like he, So having that confidence was, was. That's an even upper level, I think. Just having a coach that knows you, first of all. And like when you were talking, you reminded me that Justin is definitely one of those people who like knows what you need in that moment. Right. But then having someone who also knows your players that you're going to fight is just another level. And to Jimmy's credit, like. Him and his dad over the years, they made it their job to know my the people I was going to fight. And so they didn't have to fight them to know 
what I was up against. And that made the hugest difference because, again, like listening to other people, I can only see so many things about Telma, for example. But Jimmy made so many things and his dad, how she was killing me over the years. They're like, no, 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 no. Like she's doing that thing and you're not you're not taking care of that. And that's how she's catching you. Like those little things, like they took the time to learn that. And I think that to what you were saying over the years, you have that in your chair and you grow together and you you develop as a player with the coach there next to you. Right. Well, that's why the video review for a coach is so important because it's very hard to watch as a player, you know, especially like I always had a hard time watching my own matches, especially when oh, I know I didn't perform yeah. well. It's kind of like, it's miserable to it's be honest really with you. It's not fun. I'm sure every player who watches that, like, yeah. Yeah. I was watching an MMA, uh, like a, a video recently and it was a guy that had to watch himself get knocked out. I can't remember <gasps> what fighter it was, but it was, you know, he was like super lighthearted about the whole thing. He's like, oh no, like, but you can see him kind of cringe. Like, here it comes, <laughs> here it comes. Like it's a left leg to the head. <laughs> and it was like, I could only imagine if somebody was like, doing something that physically hurt me at the same time as I mean, well. Think you about know? if you got choked out at a tournament. Like yeah. Watching that back would be so hard to watch for me, just seeing yourself go unconscious. <laughs> right, and then sometimes when you see yourself doing bad, you're like, in your mind, you're like, what, do I, is that really what I look like? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> it looks so much better in my head. <laughs> yeah. So next question, this one's, uh, this one's a little bit more different. So it says, what IGF World Tour athletes for the Tokyo Quad uh, remind you most of yourself? Oh, Anybody that has like a, a lot of grit or physicality or special technique. Ooh, oh, my God. That's such a good question that I've never had. I mean, OK, so you know who has a lot of grit and I mimicked her grit over the years and she's still at it is Sabrina Filsmoser. And she's one of those players that when we were talking about before, like when you decide to do another quad with such an amazing judo career behind her, like that one year extension is kind of harder, you know. And so she's one of those players that I felt like. I tried to mimic her grit. So I think we're similar in that way. And she also had really good Ashiwaza that right. I also tried to mimic. Yeah. And great Nawaza. Yeah. Oh my God. Her Nawaza is the best. Like her and Aiko Sato, I, if there's a question on there, who are the best Nawazas in the world? To me, for females, Aiko and Sabrina are just the gnarliest. And I learned so much from them and got so much better just from rolling with them. So Aiko came up in my conversation with Mike and uh, he 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 mentioned in like 86 bringing in a player from Japan, a friend of his that he, he had met to mimic Koga. Yeah, I was so and, pissed when I heard him say that because he never told me that, that we had exactly parallel like experiences. I've been working with Mike for a long time and, <laughs> and sometimes, yeah, no, he, <laughs> there's some stuff in that interview. I was like, whoa, like I, that's, that's interesting. You haven't told me that sitting in this office with you for all these years. No, I heard the story and it was fascinating and so what were you going to say? But then? no, I mean, I, I was going to bring up Aiko because I mean, I think looking back at your career and Aiko, like I never, I, I was, you know, raising my kids. I wasn't in the dojo at San Jose State at the time, but she was here. I met her a few times. She came to my class for a couple of different clinics and uh, like, I think she did yoga at my judo school one time, but having Aiko for you, like Amazing. was just, I mean, who gets a partner like Aiko, who's a world champion? I'm not talking about a world champion from a long time ago, but like, was yeah. she the current world yeah. champion? So background who Aiko is. She's just an awesome judo player from Japan. <laughs> Same right. weight category as me, for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, and your weight category. World champion. And she had actually beaten me on the world tour already in Russia. She had, ugh, you can find it. It's on the internet. She beat me pretty good. Wazari then he pwned with Sode, standing Sode. <laughs> My wow. throw at the time. But um, she had come to the US, right? She was just checking it out. She had 
They had chosen not to send her to London. They were sending Matsumoto instead, who ended up winning. Talk about a deep division in Japan yeah. those years. So Aiko was like, I need to go. I want to go see the U.S. She went to the Grand Canyon. She stopped by us for a day and we're like, come work out. And it was just, she's fantastic. She had beat me before. She's a world champ. She is just a great technician, great on the mat. Her, have you seen her drop, Tayatoshi? It's I've seen it all. <laughs> and uh, we were like, so we were looking kind of like what you just said for Mike. We we're looking for somebody to help me get ready for London. And we asked her straight up and she was like, oh, I have a commitment to my own country, obviously. So she went back and helped Matsumoto and the other women train for London. She's like, but I'll come back. We're like, she's not coming back. Like, right. why would she come back? Why would she? Why would she do that? She's done, you know, and like, sure enough. As soon as the Olympics were over, she came back and she helped me train for that whole year, building up to the world championships in 2013. And then she was there in Rio, helping me warm up for the tournament. Right. <laughs> Imagine if I had won. Then it would have been like Mike Swain in the chair as world champ. Iko who <laughs> trained me for the tournament as world champ. And then they helped me become a world champ. I think it's pretty cool because, I mean, I, I just think that something like that can really help push an athlete to the highest. I mean, you, you can't really, you couldn't even like design something more perfect to have somebody your category a current world champion still in amazing shape but done i mean to to come in your dojo and i mean she's taking falls for you and like giving you and like i was saying earlier about when jimmy was coaching me she had fought all of the people people. that you're competing against sometimes she would just tell me like in tokyo grand slam the time i got second and there were three other japanese girls on the podium with me she just looked at me and was like you can win and i was like okay Right. She said, I can do it. I got to do it. No, she looked at me like with all her wisdom and knowledge and judo experience and was like, no, 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 like you can win these. And I was like, okay, (laughs) let's do it. Right. Wow. That's, that's, she's a great person. I, I really miss her. She's in Japan. Jigoro Kano considered education to be based on three components the education of knowledge, the education of morality, and physical education. Some of the most notable and successful athletes in American judo history have pursued all three of these components of education to the highest level. In the next segment, Marnie will talk about the importance of furthering yourself as a person and the many ways that the traditional education system can help prepare kids for the real world. We will throw out some hypothetical questions about American judo to get Marty's input on what we should be doing to prepare kids for success in 2028. She will share a conversation that she had with her good friend Travis Stevens and about how she got involved with Project 2024. Marty continues to be involved in judo and she continues to impact the lives of many people through her seminars as she simultaneously pursues her own career goals. We will discuss a post-COVID resurgence of judo energy that we're all hoping for and then we're going to talk a little bit about the 2028 Olympics and how it will be the best opportunity that we have seen to build the wonderful art of judo in the United States. All right, so let's see here. What do we have next? It says, uh, this one's interesting. It said, if you didn't pursue judo at a young age, is there another sport that you think you would have excelled at? No idea. Lifelong judo player. Everyone asks that question. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's like, how can you know? How can you possibly know? Do you have any activities that you do uh, outside of judo that you think you're pretty good at? (sighs) No, I'm sad. Just a judo person. cornhole or anything like that? No. (laughs) I mean, do you? Um. No, not that I'm good at. You know no. what I mean? Like you kind of like you commit your life to judo and yeah. that's why it's really hard to answer that question because when you start judo at age six, you don't, I don't have many memories before age six. Yeah. I mean, I wrestled and I thought I was good at wrestling, but I, you oh, know, yeah. not at, not at a super high level. And then like 
you know, I have hobbies, you know, like I do snowboarding, I've been snowboarding for 20 years, and like, oh, but fun. I'm not like, I don't compete and I'm not, I'm actually not even good at snowboarding. I just do snowboarding for fun, you know? But like you think like, oh, okay, I, I'm, I'm physically strong. So I would have been good at something else. And it's like, well, wouldn't you have only got physically strong from the judo? So yeah, I don't know. You, I, you have... know, even talking to your husband, he says there's something in your, because all your brothers are strong. Yeah, yeah, the Malloy family is strong. strong. It's really weird. Like I... I told you I work out, but I only lift like twice a week and I only have 25 pound dumbbells. So I don't know why my muscles stay strong. Yeah, because really we've all seen know. the biceps. I don't mean that in like a bragging way. Like I don't necessarily love having huge muscles because female clothes are not made to fit females with big biceps. Okay. You Something know? I've so, never even thought about. Yeah. Yeah. Think of my plight and other every other <laughs> judo girl in the world. Um, but yeah, it's just a weird thing that we're all strong. So we went over a little bit of this. The next one says, what is your uh, judo schedule like now that you're retired? And you obviously have been on the clinic circuit for a long time, you know, prior to COVID. And do you still enjoy teaching? And are you involved with teaching with Project 2024? Yes, I enjoy teaching. I love teaching. I never would have thought that that would be such an, an enriching thing to do. You think fighting is the epitome, right? I'm sure you maybe were like, oh, there's no way coaching is going to be as, but it's super rewarding when you get to give back and share what you've learned over all those years. Um, I Yes, I am coaching with 2024. Like the whole world has been paused. You know, it's really before I guess everything got put on pause, I was doing judo at San Jose State every day if I could, helping coach our our growing team of student athletes, which has been awesome. Um, definitely working with Mr. Uchida and our coach Kosuke Tanaka, and then I was getting around the world and doing clinics and seminars in different states and meeting a ton of people and attending different judo events and just talking to people who do judo and trying to inspire their kids and tell them to come to San Jose State and get a degree. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I never, I didn't sell short about San Jose and what a great situation it was for me and like how it helped me along and how I hope they all stay in school. <laughs> you know, that comes from, our, you know, our coach, Mr. Cheetah has always, you know, yeah. valued education and we don't want to sound like too cliche, but he has never swayed from the importance of education. You know, he's, we used to always kind of joke that he's kind of unimpressed with like a tournament win. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because some of the players that have come through San Jose State, you've seen lots of them. And, you know, some of them, a lot of them didn't go on. Most of them did not go on to be world and Olympic team members or, or medalists. He is just as proud of those students that finished their degrees and went on to have good lives. Because you know, he like, understands that, that the what's important, right? That he just has always known, recognized that. And the crazy thing is, is like when you get a degree, it doesn't necessarily mean you're smart. And I don't think that people should think because you go to college, like, oh, these smarty pantsies. It's like, no, when you go to college, you learn about the world, like in a way that you never did in high school or could in high school. Like I was a journalism major, then I was an advertising major, and then I was a digital marketing major, and then I did a minor in psychology, and I learned how to write properly and speak properly and talk out loud to a group of people and socialize like an adult. Like it's not about just like there are smarty pants with a degree. It's like learning that the world is much more than what you know when you're 18 years old, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's super easy to see now. I've been out of that world for a long time. So looking back for me, I can totally understand what Mr. Cheetah is talking about now. But you got to remember who he's talking to are these 18-year-old kids who, you know, have dreams of becoming a champion and they don't realize the importance of setting yourself up to to have a life after judo. We're not gymnasts. Right. We are an obscure sport in a country that still thinks there's a judo chop, you know? So exactly. it's like you have to recognize that and 
and just plan. You know? I, I, I've, you know, I've been doing this podcast now. This is like just episode six. That's my favorite number. There you go. But I, I've had some great conversations, even with, um, you know, Anne Marie. We, we talked a lot about education, and I, and I wasn't completely aware of her story. But you know, she graduated high school at sixteen. She graduated college at nineteen, and had her MBA at twenty-two, and won the world championships when she was twenty-four. So she's like next. <laughs> yeah, you know, she kind of just went through all of that, and I'm sure that you know she didn't talk like it made her exactly who she is. But she said, you know, like she she actually made a point to talk about. Look, like there's a lot of time during the day, like, and that's where Yosh is talking about. He's saying, like, you're training judo. You have time to do some other yeah. things, and that's how she felt. She's like, well. I can't train judo all day long. I might as well get an education. And then she went on to get her PhD after she, you know, won a world medal. Totally. And like, she's so, exactly right. Yeah. So she did all these things that set her out for, you know, good things when judo was over. So the reason I know that it's the right choice is because I was so naive before I went to college. I came from a small town, I guess. That's not you. That's not only you. I mean, that's, right? that's a, a lot of kids, you know, you, I, I think now when you get older, it's easy to look back and you see these kids and you see all the stuff they don't know, but you got to picture yourself when you were 18, when you were like, you know, trying to set up that, you know, three-stop little tour you're going to do. The, and, tripod. You know, <laughs> the tripod. The tripod tour, I right? I cannot believe we chose that name. That's hilarious. So uh, next one says, if you were given a challenge of getting a young athlete on the podium in 2028, how would you go about it? And what would that athlete do over the next eight years? How old are they when I get them? Good question. Let's call them 14 years old. Okay. so they'll They're going to be 22. Right. Wow. Um, 14. I mean, they already need to be working out with black belts 18 and older with years of experience on the IGF tour. I don't know what that looks like or where they are. There's no centralized training, but ideally surrounded by players on the tour already experiencing success or making way in their division in some way on the ranking, I guess, and competing at every junior event, I guess. So you're training with people who are level above you every day, right? And then, I mean, the bigger... So this is a very more complex question. It's absolutely complex. We can talk for an hour. Yeah, because the other part (laughs) of that is like, well, who's coaching you and what kind of skills are they putting into you and like making sure that you adhere to throughout the training, right? If you are a coach that says do this and they just do it one time and then don't do it again the rest of the practice and go back to the other way, then that's a whole other issue of like they're not developing because eight years is not a long time. Right. It's not a long time for a 14-year-old. You probably need to already be good at 14 to like be on the podium 8 years later. Yeah. Right? Like It's it's uh it's definitely a diff- difficult question. I think that that's the question that a lot of Americans are curious as to, you know, what steps should we be taking because we don't have like what you said makes sense, but it's difficult to find like how do you level up when you're 14 right. years old and right. you're from a small town or you know, for you, I guess you left home at a pretty, you know, at 15 to kind of pursue judo. Right. And I was around a lot of people who were training at a really high level. And when I went to East Bay, Sayako had just taken a silver at the Junior Worlds. Right. She was just like, boom, like upward trajectory. Right. Yeah. And she, I, I don't want to say she was at the peak of her career because I don't remember that whole, her whole career, but. She was training so hard then and just being in that environment elevated me as if I guess I should have just said my own story to answer the question. Like put yourself around people who are much better than you and experience you and like you have to elevate to that level and then also have a coach there who's telling you how to technically do that. Right. So would you be interested in taking a bigger role as a coach with USA Judo and what would you be willing to do to make that happen? 
I don't know. Because again, like being a coach, you need to be around all the athletes, right? You need to be with the, like, so if there was an IJF world tour, you need to be with those athletes on every trip and you also need to be training with them. So we don't have a centralized setup system like we used to at the OTC. But I think if a situation presented itself where you can actually like help them and help them get better and be with them the whole way, which requires a ton of funding, it requires support throughout the whole organization. I mean, it's such a So USA question. Judo uh, stumbles across a bunch of money and they say, we're going to start this new centralized national training center, you know, most likely in Colorado Springs because we have this amazing facility and uh, this big sponsor is kicking in and we've got a salary that's a pretty fair salary <laughs> for a coach. Does Marty Malloy, you know, fold up everything in San Jose and move to Colorado and become the national coach for USA Judo? I mean, I think that's a dream job. That is a dream job for any judo player. Wouldn't you want to do that? I would, especially if you would have asked me three years after my, yeah. my retirement. And that's the thing is like, and that's something that I do struggle with now to the second half of that question, which is like, would you consider doing that? Is like, you know, if there had been discussions about that, like with me going into my final year, and one thing I will have to say is like, there was, a, there was thought put to it by people in the organization who cared about me and said, listen, we know you want to become world champion. We're not trying to bug you with all of that bull. And I was able to look at them and be like, thank you. Like, you see right. that this is important to me. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword because then when I walk off the mat on that day in the fall of 2017, like, then the conversation probably should have started about, like, if that was going to happen. But it never did. So now we're kind of like, I had to move on. I had to take that degree that I had worked hard for, you know, and put it to put it to work in the real world and see what, see what could happen because there wasn't anything else happening for me right. in the judo space. And then I definitely was like, you know what? I have things to share and teach and I have my own resources to let people know that. And I'll start traveling and doing seminars on my own. And then, you know, we'll see what comes to that. I don't have to leave the judo world behind because I'm not competing. I can still impact it in some for way, sure. even if there's, there wasn't anything set up for me at that time to do it. And then, um, the funny thing is with the 2024 is like we were in Cancun before I retire, but Cancun a year before in the Olympics and Travis and I were at the training camp after and we were jogging around the mat and we just randomly he was like, what are you going to do after all this? Like next year, what are you going to do? He just did these random questions he loves to throw out to me. And I was like, oh, and he's like, well, listen, I have this idea that's similar to the under 23 program that we were a part of when we got brought up with Jimmy, where we help grow these young junior players and get them to a high level and get them to where we are. Like we, we got to do, we got to find some. And at that point, actually they were still in discussions with USA judo about doing it together. Right. And he was like, come help be a part of it. And then he's like, we're, like, come on. And I was like, all right, thank you. Like my childhood friend looking out for me, you know, you wanted me to be a part of it. And then eventually they ended up splitting from USA Judo and doing their own thing. But I continued working with them just like I said I would. And, you know, everything again has been shut down. Yeah. But I guess the long answer is that I'm still involved in the capacities that are available to me right now while still chasing my own professional goals. But who's to say, like, there is a dream scenario you just said of like yeah. great setup and like, there seems to be a rallying cry of support around the USA judo athletes now where it's like, come on, like, let's come together. Let's find a way to make this work. And so I'm hopeful. I am very hopeful because I know Keith and I've, Ryan and I've talked to him and I've 
I've met him and I've looked him in the eyes and I know that he cares about USA Judo and growing it and making it better. And that is also what gives me hope because I, I believe that to be true. So it's just, you know, there is no perfect scenario yet, though. <laughs> right. And yeah, that, that's what you're saying. Unfortunately, with COVID and the budget issues and, you know, money is not looking good, I'm sure. I don't I don't know what USA Judo looks like financially, but I'm sure it's an absolute train wreck right well, now, to be honest with you. from a broad perspective, COVID is it's terrible for people and people are dying. Like, I'm not trying to undermine that at all, but like, it's terrible for Judo. Yeah. It does not help our sport. Yeah. <laughs> that's just the- So when we come out of this, like I, that's why I started thinking about this when, when Justin and I had a conversation, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about like 2028, the Olympics coming back to Los Angeles. And I think that that, you know, my personal opinion is that we need to put everything we have into 2028 because the Olympics are at home. And this is going to be like, if, if judo ever does anything big, if, if we have a chance to do something big, it's going to be when the Olympics come home. We're, there's going to be more media exposure than there's ever been. It's going to be a full team. That's huge. Mm-hmm. There's going to be more people chasing that team, which means, you know, there's going to be more people that are excited about it. I think if everyone comes together and like... It's a huge opportunity to grow judo in our it's country. Huge. It's huge. And we're not going to have this opportunity in our lifetimes. And And that's one of the things that I'm like, I'm glad that you brought that up because like when I would travel and do my seminars, like that's exactly what I would tell when I would talk their heads off at the end and do my shit. Yeah. When you do this and this is what you do, which is awesome. But if you go to every single clinic, this is, this is all it takes sometimes because all of us have this story of like somebody who made some small impact and like Marty Malloy came to my dojo and told me that if I train hard, I can actually make the Olympic team. No joke. I see their faces change when I say that. I'm looking at them. All the eyeballs are looking at me. And they literally go, huh. Like, it's hard to think long term like that. It's nothing It's nothing against them. I was had a hard time thinking that way when I was 12, 13 years old, too. But then when you realize it, you realize that there are steps you can be taking right now to get closer to that. And I'm not just saying this about the students. I'll see the coaches, huh go, huh? And it's nothing against them either. They just haven't thought about it that way. And then if I can make them think about it that way and understand why it's important to bring players in who can challenge your athletes and bring them to the next level faster. And we've had a great relationship with Nanka in Southern California because they're really big on development and having shared workouts and bringing different people in and athletes over the years to teach. And I know they had Shintaro Nakano, who was a coach at San Jose State for a while, down there a lot and like that's what you need to do because one of them is going to impact them one of them is going right. to inspire them or teach them something that it just works really well for that athlete and it's going to click and that's it <laughs> right i think with covid i'm always you know trying to be an optimist and i think the one good thing that i'm seeing and you know unfortunately it's fear that's kind of provoking this but people are getting creative and yeah, yeah. you know i'm seeing a lot more effort when it comes to, you know, doing things online, a lot of people, and I, and I know, I don't know what it's from internally or from the, the powers that be in Japan, but a lot of the Japanese players are actually doing a really good job of getting out there in social media and helping people, you know, doing, you know, free seminars online Mm -hmm. and doing all these different things. And unless you traveled over there, you would never know, like their amazing technique and how they train it and how they do it and how they get good at it. Like, the few players that travel to Japan, but the ones who only see them win in the tournament, they don't know like how they're doing things in the background. Like it, it's, we're seeing more than we've ever seen before. Right. We, um, Tsukasa came here a few years ago yeah. to see Aton and uh, we were talking to her about, um, about clinics and, 
and her and her coaches and they were kind of looking at us like kind of dumbfounded like they're like no we don't we don't do like clinics in japan like for us like growing up like I got motivated by going to a Mike Swain clinic when I yeah. was a little boy or, oh, you know, like, strange. so there's all these little things like, so there's so many good coaches and you know good judo players. No, because all their good players are always at practice. I, I mean, they, that, so they just like have one day, like I've seen it. I've literally seen them be like, all right, well today, so-and-so is going to show his Marote. Yeah, he just happens to be a three-time world in a way, champion. <laughs> in a way, walks in. When I was at Tokai, Yamashita taught his choke and I yeah. was looking at uh, Kayla and I was like, what? what like what's happening right now like i and like that's there every day like they train at tokai those are coaches there they roll in and show their techniques come by one day nakaya was showing his and hago was showing his and i was like what that's the thing about judo when you're in the epicenter of the judo world like in japan like if you go into tokai and they have like their you know their wall of fame and you just see the number of champions <laughs> that have come out of that one dojo and it's like it's pretty amazing but somebody in in Japan or you not somebody but like even as an organization I think they see the importance especially because the Olympics is supposed to be in Tokyo and it's you know hopefully going to happen next summer but there's a push you know from a marketing standpoint and that's your background as well but it's it's marketing it's like it's telling people that judo's amazing we all think judo's amazing we have to do a better job of telling people that judo's amazing you should put your kids in judo because it's going to do great things for them after judo it's going to make them better stronger people and we have this great thing that we don't do a good enough job about to tell the masses. Somehow. And it, I always tell people the hardest thing about getting people to do judo is to getting them to know how awesome it is. Like you literally got to throw them in and they got to get kicked around a little bit and like get rough around the edges and go, oh, okay, this is, this is tough, but it's awesome. Like. Yeah, we have to work on our elevator pitch, you know, like, so all of us look at our, you know, careers in hindsight and you can say, oh, well, judo made me this or made me that, you know, it did so many great things for me as a person, but it's really hard to articulate those lessons it is. as a kid and kind of let a kid understand, like, you know, when a kid quits judo and it breaks your heart, you're like, well, like, oh, it's boring. Well, like sometimes it's not super fun, but it's doing so many great things for you. Right. Which is why, like, also like any sport you do to, with a commitment and discipline can bring that to you. Right. So, you know, we love judo, but like for the parents out there who the kids just fighting you and doesn't want to do it, like let him try something else. Let him put his energy in something else. If he likes it, maybe he'll be great at that. And that's right. all you really want, right? As judo players, we we hope that everyone sticks with judo and it becomes their love. You know, as a as a judo coach, you know, you talked about like making your impact and traveling around. For me, like I found the way to make my impact is like through my judo club. And for me in my life, I have three boys. It's like, it, it, it works out perfect. Like I don't travel like I used to. Everything's at home, but I have, you know, like this dojo with lots of people. And like, it's like on a day-to-day basis, there's like this way that I can make an impact on some kid that just comes to, you know, practice. And then I get somebody like you that pops in there out of nowhere and like motivates the kids. Like that's, it's super cool. And sometimes like, because you do this so often, you know, I I think it might be easy to kind of minimize the effect in your mind of, Mm. of the impact that you really do have on kids. And I think it's, it's important. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure people do thank you, but you know, you should be thanked more to make you realize that, like what you're doing is big and you know, like it's like, I, I don't know what's up with uh, Kayla. I know she's super busy doing her thing, like making money and fighting, <laughs> but it seems like, it seems like she kind of priced herself out of the judo, uh, you know, clinic world. You know, she's busy doing her own world and doing her things and she's doing amazing things. But I wish, you know, we can, you know, as a community, we can utilize someone like Kayla more to get her out there because she has access to him. Yeah. I she mean, was, if, she's a great judo clinician, by the way. She's she, a great person. She's yeah, a great, yeah. I mean, she's like everything about her is great. But I think that like you're fortunate because like we're, we as a community, everyone's getting to enjoy and you've been traveling around the country and it's, you know, it's been really good for her. I mean, and I appreciate that. And 
I love judo, right? I really do love the sport. So it's easy to like be like, why wouldn't you? Like, right. why wouldn't you? But also like what you were saying, like you, one thing I remember about starting judo when I was a kid is like the families that make up the judo club members really become your family. And that's kind of like, maybe that's the unique selling point that we're not conveying to the world well enough is like that you literally have another family that's part of a martial arts world and it's all and your whole life will be centered around that sport and you're going to love it. And your kids are always going to have friends and, you know, family outings and tournaments and you're going to grow as a person. And it's like, I guess it's all around, huh? It's an all around offering. Right. But those families that you meet, like I remember all the families that were at my club when I started, just like all the kids that are at your club right now, those families are never going to forget the impact you're having right now, right? By being a, starting the club and having them start judo there. Right. And it's it's really fun right now because now my club is like, I guess I've been in business for about seven years. And now I have a lot of families that have been with me for a long time. And I start to see the difference between somebody that just goes to practice and practices judo. And then eventually they become judo players. You know, like there's a big difference. And I think I there's- totally know what you mean. You know, that line may be drawn differently for every kid, but like every once in a while, like you would say, oh, I, you know, my son does judo. And eventually that person goes around saying, I am a judo player. I'm a judo player. And it's funny you say that because I always tell David like to make sure that none of our kids like end up not wanting to go to judo. You just have to introduce it to them as like, oh, no, no, no. Like we're a judo family. Like the sky is blue, the grass is green and we go to judo. And so it's not like a like, oh, are we going are, are we gonna to do judo? It's like, no, we're always at judo. Everything else is like <laughs> right. goes along with the judo. If that makes it, sense. There's some challenges that you'll see one day when you build You're a family. I saw it, you laughing. I know. I, I should not make any comments as for parents, but I'm just trying to think of ways to make sure we get that right. No, for sure. <laughs> but every, every kid is different and every kid is going to have their right. own dreams. And I'm all for right. it. I have three boys and they don't all love judo equally. My oldest son, you know, he could really take it or leave it, but- he has other things that he wants to do. And I'm, I'm going to be a supportive dad no matter what he mm -hmm. does. And if he wants to, he likes, he loves basketball. If he decides he wants to pursue basketball at a high level, then that's great. As long as he wants to put that energy toward it and towards something, right? towards, something, towards something, right? The worst thing is to have nothing to pursue. And that's the part that would like make a parent like sad. Yeah, and we didn't really talk about that, but to, I know we're going long, but I guess that was one thing that was difficult after you retire is like, there's a, there's an innate desire to pursue something that I have in me and I think a lot of judo players do and when that outlet that you're chasing is suddenly just disappears it's very disconcerting and you kind of have to like reassert yourself and recenter yourself and focus and a little bit existential thinking about like what do I want and like where do I want to go now that I've built this skill over my life so far right well it seems like you're doing everything to you know follow your path and do the things that make you happy and and eventually you'll find yourself in the judo world, whether it's in a coaching, you know, way or whether it's running a judo club of your own one day, or maybe you get onto the national circuit for coaching. There's all these different avenues that will keep you in judo. I'll and definitely be involved no matter what. Yeah. I don't think judo is sure. ever going to go away for you. So yeah, I miss it a lot. Don't you miss it? I do. It's I, really hard. I wouldn't mind pumping out like a hundred uchikomis, like in a room with sweaty, stinky people and a timer going off. So I've probably been doing a little bit more than you because I actually teach judo on Zoom now. I know it's different. It's difficult, but well, the, the San Jose State team is doing. Oh, they are. Zoom, yeah, okay, good. Workout, so, so you know, it's kind of it's kind of like a little joke, but it was like you know we used to make fun of people who learn martial arts online. 
We totally did. <laughs> but but in a way, like one thing I've noticed with Kosuke teaching the San Jose State team is like you have to become much, much more technical. And it's a really an opportunity to break old habits and build new strong ones. So it's it has its own pluses, you know. There's a lot of good things, even from a coach's standpoint, that this it's it's difficult to learn how to articulate something when you have like a you know, you got some kids have no partners, some kids have no mats, and mm-hmm. you got this screen in front of you, and you're trying to make this lesson. And, you know, even for me, I do it in my backyard. I got like a, a six by 12 mat. The other day I took a fall for cold and then I thought I broke my fingers because I just slapped the mat like half on the concrete, oh. half on the mat. And the the ends of my fingers kind of turned blue. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my I, gosh. Like, I had to finish the class. Like, five, like in my mind, I think I think I just broke two fingers, but I had to smile and like finish the class. And it I turned out they were fine. <laughs> I need another mat. You're right. I, I don't know where I would find something like that. <laughs> So anyway, Marty, earlier I started off and I, I talked about the impact that you've made in your local community in in Seattle area, you know, where you came from in the Northwest and you made a huge impact on all of the families and all of the judo coaches. A lot of the judo coaches that all of us know, even me, I'm not from there, but you guys have some great coaches that have been part of the national community of judo and you made a huge impact. You've come to San Jose and you've had a huge impact in not only San Jose State, but all of the surrounding clubs in the Bay Area. And on top of that, your impact is growing even more as you've traveled the world and you have this group of people all over the country that you're making a positive impact for their kids. And and, and, I, and I don't want to lessen, and I want you to know like the impact that you're making is huge and it is very worthwhile. And I hope that you know your life and, and pursuing your career allows you to continue to do what you do, especially after covid I think there's going to be this built up like energy for judo is what I'm hoping that I we're, that we're missing it. Mm-hmm. And it. like, I, I just can't wait for something to change. I don't know what it's going to be that gets us back on the mat and it's got to be something that makes it, you know, safe. Um, but I think everyone's looking forward to it and I can't wait for that day to start. And I think you're going to be right back into the circuit doing what you were doing. And uh, I, I, I just want to thank you for coming out tonight. We've been going for a while here and I, I really appreciate you stopping by and doing the podcast and yeah, it was fun I, mean, I feel like we you and i could kind of like go down some rabbit holes for a while so it's good we, we could i mean and this is uh season one we i have i have plans for some different seasons with some different uh topics and everything oh, i want to cool. cover so i've been enjoying the podcast a lot so far um do you have anyone exciting coming soon it's it, I, I kind of keep it top okay. secret, but I'm, I'm I like that. I like the reveal. I'm aiming high. You know, I'm trying to go. And then I also want to go different directions. You know, I want to kind of get outside of the immediate judo world. I think in the beginning, you know, hitting the judo world that we're all familiar with is pretty, I wouldn't call it easy, but it's a, it's stories that we're accustomed to. Totally. I really liked hearing Aton talk with the sports medicine side of it. So all. I've got more and plans to yeah, go in that I direction. Love that because we're all, they were all things that touch us in some way. One thing that I can't believe is that the the name judo cast like what a great name of a podcast about judo thank you yeah i mean i really like the name as well i mean i considered a, a few other names but i couldn't seem to get judo cast off my mind once it was an option so i was really excited to get the podcast started i've been exploring the idea for a long time and then you know covid hit and freed up my evenings in a pretty big way so I think the judo world needs more media and needs more exposure and I think more people need to be talking about judo. So I found it a little bit surprising that there was the lack of judo content in the podcasting world. Yeah, well There's, thank you for doing this. Thank you for the nice words too. It's fun to be a part of it. Well, I appreciate having you Marty. Best of luck with everything in the future and uh, I can't wait to see what 2021 has in store for all of us. Yeah, me too. Let's do it. All right. Thanks Marty. 
Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.